baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and it's time to chat about Major League Baseball and of course the Atlanta Braves as we like to do each and every week. But we know these are strange times we're living in right now as the coronavirus has changed our way of life and of course has put baseball season and all sports on hold as well. But we got a little bit of encouraging news as Major League Baseball and the Players Union are hammering out the details of what they're going to do when and if we can restart this baseball season or simply start this baseball season as the case may be as we just got past what would have been opening day and I know all of us are dealing with that in different ways trying to get our baseball fixed however we can and hopefully this podcast will help you out as Bill Rowland will join me and we'll talk all about what's been happening with Major League Baseball and of course the union hammering out the details of a deal that would put a season in place whenever they can get started so that's some good news to talk about and we'll get into that. I'll also be answering your Braves questions in just a moment, so we'll get to that. But before we do that, I want to make sure you know how you can connect to the show. You can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and those reviews. I really appreciate those, so keep them rolling in. And if you like the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. That helps out the show as well. You can follow along on social media. On Twitter, you can find the show at From the Diamond underscore. You can find me at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And you can find Bill Rowland at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, at From the Diamond is where you can find the show. I've been posting a few things there this week, so if you like old archival Brave stuff and cool moments, you can check that out. I'll have some of those on the Instagram for the show. And you can follow me on Instagram, at Grant McCauley as well. And FromTheDiamond.com is where you can find every episode of the show and all the articles. Got a few things planned, so be on the lookout for those. And my Braves Positional Preview Series, the podcast is up. So if you're just looking to get a little bit of baseball in your life and kind of size up where the Braves roster decisions are, the podcast series is available for you there. About 45 minutes apiece, I think, for each of those episodes. So please do enjoy those all five parts. And the written version of my Braves Positional Preview Series I have updated those with some takeaways from spring training, and you can find all of that good stuff over at FromTheDiamond.com. I'm going to welcome Bill Rowland into the show in just a couple of minutes. Before I do that, though, I want to get to some of your Braves questions. I asked you on Twitter if you had any of those. I got some good responses, so I wanted to answer a few of those before we get rolling on what will be a very eventful show when it comes to what MLB and the Players Union have come up with over the last 48 or so hours. So let's get that started now. got this question from Peyton. Is the Braves lineup as is good enough to win the National League? I do think the Braves lineup is going to be one of the best in the league. Now, whether or not they can win the pennant, I think they got to concentrate on just winning whatever playoff series they can get into because that's going to be the next step this club needs to take, and we've been waiting on that for quite some time. But when you look at the top of the order and you look at what Ronald Acuna Jr. can do, what Ozzie Albies can do, of course, Freddie Freeman, you put Marcelo Zuna in the cleanup spot, and then you start to figure out Will it be a Travis Darno batting fifth? Will Austin Riley bat fifth? Would someone entirely different be batting fifth? 
then what kind of season would you get out of a Johan Camargo or an Austin Riley? What would you be getting out of Dansby Swanson over the course of hopefully a healthy season? And then how this outfield mix is going to go with Ender Ciarte, with Nick Marquez, with Adam Duvall, and how all of that is going to affect what happens in spots five through eight in the order. There are some questions, but I think there's a lot of depth and there's a lot of talent. So I do think this is going to be a very good lineup. I do think they're going to be able to score runs in the way that they have in the last couple of seasons. But if anything, the Braves are looking for that consistency that they want to find. Finishing strong and being ready to roll right into the playoffs would be the ideal scenario. But of course, playoff baseball is wholly different than whatever you're doing during the regular season. But I do think the Braves have one of the best lineups in the National League. And I think they're going to show it this year again. Got this question from Chris about the pitching staff. How do you think the layoff will affect the rotation's production, particularly the younger starters? I don't think it's going to negatively affect these guys, but we're going to talk about this a lot when Bill joins the show in just a little bit about what kind of preparations each team is going to be able to make to ramp up and get ready for the regular season. How much time will they have? Doesn't sound like exhibition games are going to be involved. So I think that you might want to just Be careful with some of the young arms, really every arm you're going to have to be kind of careful with. But Mike Soroka, Max Freed, I expect to do the things that they did last year. But maybe those first couple of outings would be a little bit shorter to build up their pitch count and get them back to where they need to be. Not just throwing on the side and getting ready for the regular season, but kind of building their arm up the way that you would in the last couple of weeks of spring training. Now, that being said, I've got a couple of questions about Cole Hamels and his status and The big thing about it is, yes, if you don't play April or play into May, that Cole Hamels would have missed that time already. Would he be ready when the season does start? I think the only way you're going to be able to answer that is when he starts throwing, he's going to be starting from square one for how he would be building up his arm to start a season. Will he have adequate time? I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that he's in the rotation on opening day, but he may not be that far behind the way that he could have been or would have been had the season started on time this year. One more question about the Braves rotation. This one comes from Ross on Twitter. Does the season starting late affect Felix's chance of being in the rotation? I would say it may depend on where Cole Hamels is, but my short answer will be no. I do think that if Felix is healthy and comes back, that he will get one of the spots in rotation. But how many spots are available and for how long at the back end of that rotation after you talk about Mike Soroka and Mike Fultonevich and Max Fried having three spots, Cole Hamill's getting one when he's healthy. And then do you go with Sean Newcomb or do you go with Kyle Wright? And if you go with Kyle Wright, is Sean Newcomb in your bullpen? I think the answer to that would be yes. That's how I kind of see things shaking out. But Hamill's and his health, I do think that's going to be an X factor for Hernandez making the rotation. But you could also option Kyle Wright if you wanted to, if he struggled, back down to AAA Gwinnett to start every fifth day. But again, I look at at some point, you've got this talent here. You've got to test them and you've got to do it at the highest level. And I'd really like to see what Kyle Wright could do with, say, 20, 25 starts in a major league season. Time may not allow this year, but I'd like to see him get as many as possible. And I think the Braves owe it to themselves to find out what they've got in this guy, especially if he can help them win ballgames. A couple of other questions covered this quite a bit over the course of the offseason was asked, what are the chances a Nolan Arenado trade occurs? If so, who would you give up for him? That is from Luke over on Twitter. And Uh, Luke, I really don't see that as being a likely scenario for the Braves. Nolan Arenado's contract is one that I'm not sure Atlanta wants to take on. When they're figuring out extending Freddie Freeman, perhaps extending Mike Soroka and Max Freed, and then spending in free agency as well, I don't know that they necessarily want to put $25, $30, or, or more than $30 million per season 
into one player that's outside of this organization right now. And unless or until Liberty Media really changes the spending habits that it's had, they have upped the payroll. But when you start talking about $200-plus contracts, I don't think that the Braves are in that stratosphere right now. And unless or until they sign one of those, I think we're just going to have to deal with the fact that the Braves are going to have to be more creative and find different answers to their question at third base or in other places than trading for other players that are among the highest paid in baseball and have six, seven, eight years left on a contract. I just don't see that as feasible right now. Would love to have him, but I just don't think that's something that the Braves are really going to be looking into unless the Rockies are going to be paying part of the freight. And from what it sounds like on the Rockies' side, they don't seem to be interested in paying down Nolan Arenado's contract enough. And you have to keep in mind, he can opt out of that deal as well before it's over. So how much do you really want to give up if you can only have him in the short term? I think that the Braves and a lot of other clubs would face a lot of challenges in just getting the logistics in place to make a trade like that happen. So I don't think it's going to be very likely, at least right now, and I don't think it's going to be able to happen in the not-too-distant future because once the league and the players announce this agreement they have to get a 2020 season started whenever they can, there's going to be a transaction freeze in place, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of trades happening before opening day, at least the way it looks right now. But that, of course, could change. I just wouldn't be expecting blockbuster trade news to happen before opening day for the Braves, if not the rest of baseball. 29 other clubs will have to figure that out. And one last question that comes from Tim, and he asks, do you believe the Braves organization will ever retire Andrew Jones' number? It's a great question. I think it's still a very good possibility. I think Andrew, of course, is a team Hall of Famer. I think he's got a strong case for Cooperstown as well. Long term, I think there's a very good chance it could happen, but in the short term, I'm just not sure that the Braves are considering that right now, even though Andrew was one of the best and most exciting players for the Braves during their run of 14 consecutive division titles. Just not sure that the club is considering that at the present moment. All right, so that'll wrap up our Q&A. Really appreciate you throwing those questions out there, and hopefully those answers were sufficient for you. So let's jump into the big news that's happening this week in Major League Baseball. No, we did not get opening day, but hopefully we're taking steps towards getting an opening day eventually. I'd like to welcome Bill Rowland into the show so we can chat about this because, Bill, we got some news on Thursday night. Major League Baseball and the Players Union have moved towards an agreement. They've got themselves a framework of what a Major League Baseball season could look like in 2020 when and if we get to go ahead to get this thing started. So a lot to talk about in this show, but first and foremost, how you doing? How you holding up? And what have you been doing to pass the time the last couple of weeks? Yeah, thanks, Gray. I appreciate it. I, I've been doing pretty much what everybody else is supposed to be doing, I guess, and that's just staying in and around my house and only going out to, to get the necessary supplies. So uh, a lot of walking of the dog, a lot of yeah. hanging out, watching the neighbor's kids play out in the yard, but not much else going on. And, and as you mentioned, this agreement, while it's not actual games, it does get us a step closer to having games if and when they're able to do it, which I think was smart for Major League Baseball to start figuring this out now rather than waiting for an announcement, okay, we can start ramping up. With this in place, it makes it a lot smoother of a transition to get the games going, as you said, if and when they can do that. Yeah, the if and the when are things that we're going to figure out. But Major League Baseball and the Players Union, of course, were motivated to figure out what it was going to look like when they got to whatever this baseball season is going to be. They couldn't get caught flat-footed, and all of a sudden it'd be two weeks out from when they would ideally like to start, but they hadn't made that plan. So you knew this was coming. You knew how important it was. You know everybody's trying to follow all the protocols and remain safe and make the best decisions possible here, Bill. But I think both sides were obviously motivated to have something in place well in advance of whenever the bell rings or the whistle blows to say, hey, you guys can go back to work. 
It'll be interesting because I didn't see it um, actually in the announcement of this framework that I didn't see them talk about whether or not they would be able to start the season without fans, if they'd be willing to do that or not. And they did address in some ways hotspot areas like San Francisco, like Mm -hmm. New York, obviously, with two teams there. I mean, if New York is still going through what they're going through, how do you how do you start at some place and say and just randomly picking Kansas City, who doesn't have the population density, may not have as many cases of COVID-19 as compared to a place like New York, who was just getting swamped by this? That's the only thing that I didn't see in this agreement or the framework of the agreement that I would have liked to have seen them try to address. But maybe they don't know how they can play that out right now. Yeah, I think that they're not wanting to get into too many, and I don't want to call them doomsday scenarios, but too many worst, worst case scenarios. Let's call it a double worst case scenario where they wouldn't be able to play in the cities that, you know, the teams call home. That may be something that we get into when we talk about neutral site playoff scenarios and things like that that may be weather related. But I would imagine, and this is just kind of looking at it from, I would say, a common sense or outsider's perspective, just based on some of the logistics that go into it. If you are a New York based team, and the travel has not really been okayed to go back to normal, I wouldn't imagine that they'd be going to too many neutral site places anyway. So we would be far beyond what either the curve of this thing would be in terms of overall cases of the coronavirus and also, you know, okaying everything as far as interstate travel and feeling safe to do so. Because if I'm Kansas City, I don't necessarily want to open the doors to a whole bunch of people from a higher density place that might have more cases that could bring it into a place that did not have that much, so to speak, beforehand. So there's a lot of different things. And you bring up a good scenario to which I don't really have an answer, but just trying to think outside the box or however you can about this, there are a lot of things, a lot of boxes that are going to have to be checked before we even can say baseball or any other sport or really our regular everyday life is able to go back to normal, so to speak. Yeah, that's true. And and one of the things that they they talked about is trying to get as many games as possible in. And, and that, to me... I mean, I, I heard, um, gosh, I want to say, was it Steve Avery talking about how the strike hurt his career way mm-hmm. back when, when they tried yeah. to ramp up? I worry that you're going to have guys like this uh, have the same problem, um, that they're going to ramp up so quick and you're going to have so many games because they're talking about less days off and everything else. Yeah, I, I worry that we're going to have a, a rash of injuries that you're going to be able to look back maybe four or five years from now and point to that scenario that they, they just rushed guys back and they tried to force too many games into too short of a time period. And that could hurt the game overall, at least for individual players that end up having that happen to them. Yeah, I think that's something they're going to look to address in a number of different ways. And with that in mind, and that story about Steve Avery is a good backdrop and one I actually was telling on Twitter uh, earlier this week to a fan as someone asked about uh, Mike Soroka in particular, like who did Mike Soroka remind me of as a young pitcher? And I said, I think Steve Avery, because of the Mm. age that he was and the success that he had and the big games that he pitched for the Braves between 91 and 93 in particular, didn't have a great season in 94. The strike ended. But when he came back in 95, I vividly remember hearing him tell this story on a Braves pregame show about my career was never the same because I went home and came back and tried to get ready too quick. Didn't feel right, never really felt right. And it just got worse from there. And he really traces the entire downturn of his career to the fact that there was a player strike and then a very abbreviated period of time in which they were supposed to get ready and jump into the season into 1995 and that did not serve him well whatsoever 
So that is an interesting topic to discuss. And of course, the possibility Major League Baseball and all the clubs are going to want to monitor. But let's jump into the meat and potatoes of this agreement. I've typed up what I believe to be the bullet points of what this thing will look like and trying to hit the highlights here as we talk about this on the show. Uh, Number one thing I saw in this agreement was the start by date that they're looking for right now appears to be a best case scenario of June 1st, but they'd like to have the season started by July 1st at the least. And the goal is to get in at least 100 games. Bill, you and I have talked about this. I feel like 100 games is a pretty worthy goal right now. Do you think Major League Baseball is going to be able to get in that many? And how far into the year do you think they want to stretch this thing to make that a reality? Well, yeah, I think June 1st is probably, obviously, the best case of best case scenarios because they're talking about needing four weeks to ramp up to the season. Right. So that means they'd be starting spring training second spring training on May 1st, which we're not that far out from. And again, everything that you see from people, you know, the doctors and everybody else is still saying, look, we're still four, six, eight weeks away from being able to do those type of things. So I think that's very ambitious of them. I think July 1st is probably more accurate that they're going to be able to get that started. So at that point, to get in 100 games by the end of September, you're talking about playing pretty much every single day and then double headers as well. So can they get 100 games in? I would think if they started July 1st and they ended mid-October, they can get their 100 games in. To me, that should be the goal. They shouldn't be pushing. I've seen some scenarios for 144 and everything else. I'm with you. I think 100 and having the regular season done by October 15th should be the goal. Yeah, I agree with that. And one of the other things I looked at when it came to this was and the details these two sides have agreed to And this is according to an article from USA Today by Bob Nightingale that came out on Thursday. Also, Evan Drellich and Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic have a lot of detail as well. So I've tried to take the best of both of those, put them together, cross-check them, and hit all of these things so that we know what scenarios right now are being reported as to have been discussed or agreed upon or agreed upon to be discussed at a later date, as the case may be. But 100 games or so sounds like about the right number if the season stretches into late November. I don't really have a problem with that, but any scenario that was thrown out or bandied about, I know Scott Boris was pushing one for a 162-game season that would wrap up in December, like around Christmas. I don't think anybody was really in that business. And then you start thinking about, hey, there's no real offseason when it comes to getting ready for 2021. So I think they're making the best that they can out of the time frame that they have. But to your point, we still don't know what that best-case scenario starting date is in relation to will it be a reality? I mean, you can say whatever date you want to right now, but can that actually happen? That remains to be seen. So June 1st is a nice date to say. It would be wonderful if that's the date that we're all talking about and baseball does come back and life comes back to normal for all of us around the world. But there's still a lot to be determined between now and then. And as far as spring training is concerned, from what I was reading in one or both of these articles, there may be no more exhibition games. Teams would just go to their own home ballparks and begin working out and getting ready for opening day. And I think that's probably the way to go. Again, I think that's right. I don't think you should bring everybody back to Florida, back to Arizona, that type of thing. I think that's a little bit too much. But I go back to, and I guess Major League Baseball isn't going to start this until the you know all clear has been given or whatever it is. But I still look at it and say, okay, so you're going to have the Yankees there in New York, the Mets there in New York, working out at their facilities when they're basically at what is the epicenter of the epidemic right now. And you're going to have guys traveling back and forth and having to do all these things. So I guess, again, if this scenario is based on the all clear being given, 
we're okay. But if it's just, hey, we can do this limitedly and we'll be okay to start and we're starting with no fans and everything else, I still wonder how they're going to work that with teams that are in the hotbed areas. But going going back to the Boris thing of playing until December, 162 games, that's just absurd. I get it if you're going to do, look, the playoffs and you want to go neutral site for the playoffs because it's, you know, 10 degrees in New York at the end of November for whatever reason. They got to move it somewhere else because the Yankees made the World Series. Okay, you're affecting one team. But if you're still playing regular season games at the end of November, early December, before you get the playoffs, and you're in Chicago and you're in Cleveland and you're in Boston, even if you're out right. at that point, how are you going to play those games? There, There could be snowstorms in Boston or Chicago or Cleveland that's going to cancel things for two weeks. It's just an impossibility to try to think that you can have baseball being played at Christmas time unless everything gets moved to Florida and Arizona. Yeah, I look at that the same way. I mean, there are so many different places across baseball that may or may not be in service at that time as far as stadiums are concerned because obviously, you know, there are a finite amount of teams that make the playoffs. So you would have contingencies available, but Baseball's never been that neutral site place for things like that. I know the Super Bowl is played in a different city every year, but when you think about it, the Super Bowl is one game. Right. And I understand that it's probably unfair to give one team the home field advantage for that, and that's never been the way that they've wanted to do it, or at least it's not anymore. So I can understand that baseball might have some reservations about changing the way that it's played because we're talking about a series. You know, we're talking about what four games for one team, in theory, three games for another team if it goes all seven. Those are things where those home fans have always gotten the opportunity to see their team in their city and have a chance to cheer on their team. So this would be wholly different for baseball. Not that they haven't done exhibitions before, not that they don't do it in spring training, not that the World Baseball Classic isn't played all over in different places and it seems to go okay for the most part, but I've never looked at the World Series as something that you wanted to have in a neutral site place. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday, just kind of trying to get ready for this show, but If you do play in a neutral site, you can't then move to a different site and have that back and forth, nor do you need to. So you would basically just alternate home and away in the same ballpark for as many games in a playoff series as necessary if we're talking about moving something because of weather. And the example that you and I talked about off the air was what if it's Dodgers-Yankees in the World Series and it's late November and again... You just can't play baseball in late November in New York because the weather doesn't allow for it. So you move New York to somewhere else. Well, I'm with you. I don't think you can let the Dodgers play their home games at their stadium and then the Yankees have to play in Tampa, although there's plenty of Yankee fans down there in Florida and Tampa. I I just I don't see how that would be fair. You have to play all seven games at the same site with nobody having an advantage. I don't know, especially the owners of some of those teams are going to want to give that up because that's four dates in your park, especially in a place like L.A. that's got a gigantic stadium. You're going to be giving away a lot of money if you agree to this and play all of them in a neutral setting. Right, and I think that's one of the things that you look at as well from a financial standpoint. If the Yankees lost their home games that they would be playing in New York, but the Dodgers were allowed to host home games in Los Angeles from a financial perspective, that wouldn't be fair. So would they split the gates on that kind of stuff? How exactly would all of that play out? Because somebody's going to be asking that. And while right now our focus is obviously on the pandemic and the health ramifications and keeping people safe and whatnot, when it comes to the business side of things, there is going to have to be some very long and protracted discussions about how exactly that's all going to break down that we've never had before. 
because this is not a scenario that anybody's ever dealt with. So not trying to, you know, meander off into a tone deaf place, but just talking about this from the business perspective of what baseball is up against. I don't know that there are a lot of easy answers to this. There's going to be a lot of hours and a lot of coffee that's going to be utilized to get people through these negotiations, I believe. Yeah, no question about it. One of the other things that they've talked about, too, in this framework for an agreement is the weekly double headers. And I think you and I both are like, okay, that makes sense. Yep. And then there's a report that came out that they talked about maybe doing uh, seven inning doubleheaders like they do in the minors, like they do at the college level and everything. And at first, I kind of shrugged and went, okay, that makes sense. Until, Grant, I saw this morning a report on CBSSports.com that the arbitration system could actually get messed up a little bit because that's based on nine-inning games and performances and everything else. So is that going to screw people up when it comes to arbitration when you look at you're not playing the game the way that it's written and the way they, they do the arbitration system is based on innings and everything else? Are guys going to end up losing money because they're playing seven-inning DH-laden doubleheaders? No, I, I will say the easy answer to that is no. And the reason why is there was some very specific negotiations that happened in the midst of this, I think, to allay all of the players' fear because their number one priority in this, and rightfully so, was what the service time was going to be. So much so that they were willing to, I don't want to say take a loss on their salaries for this year, but the players were willing to make that concession when it came to their salaries and have those be prorated and they can figure out kind of all of the details about that once we know how long the season is going to be, how many games it's going to be. So it will affect them financially. But from a service time perspective, I found these to be some of the most interesting things about it and hopefully for the players, something that allowed them to peel back as many layers as they needed to with some of the other things and say, OK, we're getting taken care of when it comes to service time. So players will get credit for a full 162-game season's worth of service time if this season is played, regardless of how many games it is. So that will help in arbitration, free agency, and all of those other things, because that's exactly how baseball's pay structure is set up. So you bring up a very good point. If the season is canceled, then players will get the same service time they got in 2019. So the scenario that you know many people jumped to immediately was, well, hey, that's uh, one year closer to free agency for guys in multi-year deals. And for guys who are in the last year of their deal, like, say, a Mookie Betts in Los Angeles, if the season's canceled, he may never play a game for the Dodgers. So that is going to be a rat's nest worth of things to figure out if you're the Dodgers who made that trade to get that superstar player and you don't get anything out of him. But the Red Sox get to keep the return for that. And you have to look at each other and say, well, what can we do? This is unprecedented. How do you undo it? You really can't. Yeah, that's a great point. There are a lot of guys, and I mean, even I'm sure there are guys that are in their last year of their contracts there in Atlanta. I know here yep. in Washington, a guy like uh, Sean Doolittle, a guy like Ryan Zimmerman, Howie Kendrick, they're all on their last year or in one-year deals. And if the season isn't played, then off into the sunset go some of these guys. Or as you mentioned, I mean, Mookie Betts becomes a free agent, never plays for the Dodgers. They don't get anything out of the trade at all. I don't know how you fix that because it's not like the Red Sox can then send the players back to L.A. because they're not getting Mookie Betts back for it. Right. Um, so I, I don't I mean, I don't know how you can untangle any of that other than to say, look, this was a once in a lifetime situation mm -hmm. and we're all just going to have to deal with it going forward. And that's what Rob Manfred's probably going to have to say to these ball clubs. 
Yeah, and I think that this is a discussion that have already happened. Clearly, if the two sides have got together and sat down, these are if we're sitting here on a podcast coming up with it, I'm sure that people who are involved in the inner workings of Major League Baseball's pay scale and all of the players' union side of things, they've already talked about this as well. And in Atlanta, Marcelo Zuna and Cole Hamels both signed one-year deals, so they would get the prorated portion of their salary as agreed upon by the two sides, whatever that may be. Again, this is if the season were canceled, which, of course, we certainly hope it's not but they may never play a game in a Braves uniform beyond whatever exhibitions they played in the spring. And for Hamels, he didn't play any. So it would be pretty interesting to see how that all plays out. But I don't want to see that play out that way. Let me just preface it with all of that. But these are the things that Major League Baseball and the Players Union had to sit down and say, okay, this is what we want, but what if X, Y, and Z happen as well? Yeah, and the the interesting thing going even beyond major leagues and the service time and the pay and everything else is what do you do with some of these minor league guys? What do you do with some of the guys mm-hmm. that would have been rule five guys going into this year? And now all of a sudden, okay, do their original teams keep them? Do they become yeah. free agents? I mean, I haven't seen anything on that necessarily on how it would work. Obviously they're hoping that the season will be played out, but they've also messed around or they're talking about messing around with the 2020 draft um, that it won't be 40 rounds. That it's yeah. only going to be maybe five to ten. So Correct. Great. So great. Here's the thing: you need these players to come into the Major League Baseball system. You need five rounds as 150 some players. That's not going to be enough to backfill the minor leagues. So you're talking about a talent drain, and even further, it's going to trickle down to the NCAA as well mm-hmm. because if they're expecting guys to get drafted and they are expecting them not to be on their rosters next year, say at a place like Tennessee or South Carolina or you know, Miami, any of these big you know, schools that get guys drafted every single year, it seems like. What happens when those guys don't get drafted and they're coming back to school and all of a sudden you were expecting freshmen to come in to take their place and now there's not the money to cover all these guys? I mean, the trickle-down is going to be huge, not only in Major League Baseball, but to the minors, to the draft only being five rounds, to college baseball, if you're a baseball fan, this is a big, big mess if they go five rounds for the draft. And then I think they were talking about only maybe 20 rounds next year. Yeah, there could be some large-scale, long-term effects that go on when it comes to the draft. And that is something that we could spend the rest of the show talking about, all of the ins and outs and nuances that might be involved with what's going to happen to the draft. But I think my overall biggest takeaway was the players knew they had to concede something somewhere. And none of those players in the amateur ranks are in the players' union. However, every player, from having understood what either signing as an international free agent in the case of many, drafted in the case of many more, or signing as an undrafted free agent at some point, which I think is probably uh, what we'd be looking at here large scale if you've only got a five-round draft, they wanted some draft to happen. And at the time, I think the owners were leaning towards maybe not having a draft at all. So even making it happen might have been a win for the players' side in a small way, but the ramifications and all of the things that could happen as a trickle-down effect or a domino effect of having a five-round draft, I think we're going to be untangling that for quite some time. And going back to the minor league side, I don't know if you're much of a Marvel Comics guy and have watched the MCU movies. Have you watched a lot of the the Marvel films that have come out over the past Uh, decade or so? I mean, I haven't seen all, was it 40 some, but I've seen enough. I'm familiar. (laughs) It's a lot, but it's not quite 40 yet. But um, when you go back to Infinity War, right? And Thanos gets the Infinity Gauntlet. And this is spoilers for three years ago, for those of you who are listening. 
and he snaps away half of the world, right? And then you get into Endgame, and everybody comes back when the Avengers undo that and snap everyone back. I think that in a lot of ways, the MCU was explaining for its large-scale main characters where they were during the snap. But for all of the people who were off-screen that did not show up, that they're trying to explain from this point going forward what happened during that, what, five-year lapse between one snap and the next, that's kind of where the minor leaguers fall. People know about them, they care about them, but we don't really know what their fate is or was during all of this. From that service time perspective, I'm guessing they might just get credit for another year. You might just move the timeline forward, but this might be something that has not been hammered out completely on the minor league side of things. So just trying to make some kind of analogy or metaphor that might make a little bit of sense. I'm not sure that all the I's have been dotted and T's have been crossed when it comes to outside of the major leagues. What all is this going to mean for the rest of the world of baseball? Again, a lot to untangle, and that's why guys get paid a lot more money than you and I do to do this kind of stuff. Sure although, although we could probably come up with the same scenarios and fixes, but when you've got you know thirty some what billionaires all in a room and all have mm-hmm. different ideas on how things should go, uh, it's probably a tough thing to work out. Now, let me ask you something as well, because this was also in the framework they had talked about, and you and I had talked about it on a previous episode, about the playoffs expanding out and whether or not we wanted that or not. There's talk to help recoup some of the money involved in this, that they would expand the playoffs this coming year. Are you in favor of them experimenting with it in 2020, or once they have it, it ain't going away? Well, I am in favor of them experimenting with it. And then I'm also in favor of them coming back and saying, okay, going forward, did this work? What do we like about this? And what may we do moving forward that would make sense for our overall playoff structure? Because I think it kind of has to take a back seat. And you might have to get creative in this particular scenario of what the 2020 season might be and what the postseason might look like. And Bill, I look at the 1981 strike shortened season as a way that you could do that if you wanted to. And it's something that's in place in the minor leagues where you have a first half champion and a second half champion. And they had to do it at that time because they only had the two divisions in each league. Now we're sitting here with three divisions in each league. We got wild cards. So I don't know if they necessarily need to do it that way. But if they wanted to make it interesting, maybe have some parity that we haven't had in a lot of years and a lot of sports. Though baseball, I think, is pretty good about that. It would be fascinating to see first half and second half champions in divisions maybe fighting each other out for the division crown itself, and then advancing on into the playoffs and having more postseason baseball or meaningful baseball at the expense of, say, having two more weeks worth of regular season games, that might be somewhere that I would land as far as my interest as a baseball fan. And from a traditional sense, it might be a little bit shocking to see playoffs that become something of a round-robin tournament and might have a few too many entrants in there for the liking of a lot of people. So I don't know that there's an easy answer there, but my short answer to it is, could you experiment with stuff this year? Yeah, I think you can, and I kind of think you should. Yeah, I'd love to see them if they can somehow figure out a way to get to that 100-game mark. Just do two 50-game sprints, basically. Mm-hmm. And as, as you and I talked about yesterday, maybe you get a team that gets hot at the first part in the first 50 games. They win that division. Uh, you know, A team like, I don't know, San Diego or Cincinnati, yeah. who we think is going to be tough this year. And maybe they win the first half. And then you take three or four days to rest, maybe even try to do an all-star game yeah, or have something. Have your all-star game. Yeah, yeah. For, for charity or whatever it may be. Donate a bunch of money to, to mm-hmm. a certain cause. And then another 50-game sprint to the end. And if you win your division both times, great. You get a buy in the playoffs and everybody else, you can kind of figure it out. I think that would be a lot of fun 
for this year. I wouldn't be in favor of them doing it every year, but I think it could be something different. And I think it would draw a lot of eyes to baseball, as a matter of fact, because people would be very intrigued by it being so quick because what's the argument that non-baseball fans usually have? Oh, the season drags on forever. It takes too long. Well, 50 games goes pretty quick. You're talking about six weeks at that point. Yeah, you are. And I don't think that anybody's going to make this argument for, well, if they do the shortened thing this year, then they're going to be under pressure to do it every year moving forward, and they should automatically shorten the season. I don't think that'll be the case. If anything, you know, as I've looked at the shorten the season talk over the last few years, yeah, maybe you peel it back to 154. That was a number that was in place before expansion back in, what, 1961. And of course, the home run record got broken the first year you expanded and added eight games. And that's the kind of stuff that can happen, the chaos theory, I guess, that goes with it. But if you bump things back eight games and enhance your playoffs as a result of that, I think that would be an okay thing as well. We're starting the season earlier than ever in normal years and trying to get the thing done all inside of October as far as the playoffs are concerned, which is totally understandable. But I do think that there is still room to improve that process. Now, are the people in charge, the folks that are going to be doing the right amount of improving, and are these changes or possible changes going to be things that fans are going to take to immediately? Probably not. But in a long-term way, it might improve the overall product just by having to go through some of the tough times right now to really glean some answers about maybe where baseball is and where baseball needs to go and how they can get there because they've had to face a lot of adversity as everyone in the country is. But from a business model perspective, again, just taking that look alone, there could be a lot of learning that comes out of this for baseball if they're able to get this season in or a shortened version of this season in and they're able to get the postseason in a different way than we've seen it before to work. It could be worth taking those chances and learning those lessons. Yeah, I think this is a great year to, as you say, take chances. I think this is an opportunity for them to kind of experiment with a couple things. You know, one of the things that they talked about if they go to those doubleheaders is having the DH actually in the National League for those to kind of help save uh, your pitching so you don't have as many uh, you know pitching changes. It'll be interesting mm-hmm. because remember they had a lot of these rule changes that were coming in, including the three batter rule and mm-hmm. everything else that's in play that was going to be kind of experimental anyway. So you've got an opportunity to just kind of say, hey, you know what? Let's try a bunch of different stuff here in 2020. And the stuff that works and the stuff that we like, we'll keep. And the stuff that doesn't, we can say, well, it was 2020. It was a weird time. We're not going back to that. It's a great opportunity to do this. Yeah, I mean, you've got a built-in reason and or excuse, depending on if you're an optimist or a pessimist about it, for trying some things out. And if they work, then great. If they don't work, then you can say, hey, well, we tried it. It didn't work, and that's fine. And that was your test case or your test group, if you want to call it that, from a scientific perspective. One of the other things that we talked about as far as rule changes were for the year 2020 was expanding the roster from 25 men to 26 men. That, of course, something the Players Union clearly wanted because that's another major league job for 30 teams, therefore 30 guys. But the possibility of this season getting started without a spring training, as it were, it would lead them to expand the rosters from 26 to up to 30. But I'm hearing 29, I think, was the report from Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich in The Athletic. So 29 players, at least to start the season, I'm guessing there'd be a date where they would go back to the 26. But that's three more jobs there. And maybe that's a little bit of insurance towards having to start the season in less than ideal terms when it comes to ramping things up again and getting ready. Because again, they may not play exhibition games. They may just go ahead and start the season after they've worked out sufficiently over the course of what, two or three weeks, which 
I don't know if you can call that working out sufficiently for everyone, but I would assume, and that's a dangerous thing to do, that most guys that are at home are probably still working out in some way, shape, or form, but working out and playing games are two entirely different things. Yeah, that's what everybody always says when you're rehabbing or just trying to get into shape. There's getting into shape and then there's being in game shape. No matter what sport you're in, you can't replicate actual game reps. Um, so I think the 29 is, is good. I wouldn't have a problem, again, for this season, if they just left it at 29 all the way through because you're mm-hmm. going to need those, especially I would imagine a couple of those are going to have to be um, pitching arms. You're yeah. going to need those extra arms, especially if you're doing double headers once a week and everything else. So to me, I don't even expect there necessarily to be a date where they go, okay, by August 15th, you got to have it back down to 26. Just leave it at 29 and let's not try to push these guys any farther than they necessarily have to. To me, this this year, honestly, Grant, is almost going to be about surviving the 2020 baseball season than anything else because you're, you're not going to have a regular a run up to the regular season. You're not going to have, you know, as many days off as you normally do during the regular season. You're going to have way more double headers, you know, for every team than you normally yeah. do. So let's just survive it without ruining some of these guys that we want to see in 2021 and beyond. Yeah. And getting back to double headers, I know you brought this up a little bit earlier and we did touch on it, but I did want to throw out just from my minor league experience, seven inning double headers are not the worst thing in the world. When you're a play-by-play broadcaster who knows you're automatically going to be calling 14 innings by yourself that day, I wouldn't say it's a relief to know the games could be seven innings, but it makes sense from a logistical standpoint if they were to go that route. So there is precedent for the seven-inning doubleheader. It is used in the minor leagues, and still there could be extra innings. There could be a lot of different things that would happen that would make game one a marathon and game two maybe a sprint. I don't know, but putting that in place I don't think would be the worst thing in the world. And I don't think it would be too jarring once you've seen it a few times. It just kind of starts to make sense because, you know, hey, we've got two games today. They're seven innings apiece, barring extra innings. And that's just kind of where we are. And it allows us to get more games into the schedule, which I do want to touch on that a little bit. From what I could tell, Bill, it looks like the schedule would just pick up from the date in which they would start and move forward. However, the Players Association and the league have agreed that the unilateral schedule that could be given by the league that's not going to be a thing. The players are going to get some kind of say on how this whole thing's going to be executed, which I think is another very important hurdle I'm sure they had to clear. Honestly, it's too bad that they don't have even number of teams in each league that you have right. to have interleague every day because yep. it would be nice to only play American League games because that would help you eliminate some of the problems when you say, okay, what games are we going to eliminate? Sure. So you're saying if they start July 1st, you would just start whatever your schedule was on July 1st? From the initial report that I saw, I believe it was in the USA Today report by Bob Nightingale, that yes, they would pick up there, because I don't think that you can sit down and redraw a schedule for all 30 teams moving forward, and you've really done a lot of the groundwork, but I guess what I start to wonder is, when you're stacking double headers, are you just looking at the teams in the schedule for where it would make the most sense? Like, the Braves and the Nationals are going to play a whole bunch of times in 2020, right? Because they're in the same division. They've got those 18 or 19 meetings. So you could sneak in other games through double headers by having the Braves and Nationals say, make up that April series that they weren't going to get or that May series that they were going to lose by playing a double header in August and another double header in September. And say there was another double header somewhere in between, but playing three double headers and automatically you've made up a three game series that you didn't get earlier in the year. I'm guessing that's how they would mix and match to add games back to the schedule 
by the use of double headers is by making sure that you get all of your intradivisional matchups in place because that for every team, that's the one place in the schedule I know for sure that you can go for games and find somewhere to put them. That was going to be my question is if you look at it, everybody's playing, you know, in, in your division, you play 19 games against everybody else and it's nice and balanced. Well, if you pick up July 1st, let's say, and just throwing out a random date, if you look at it, what if you're the Nationals? And you had nine of those 19 games were going to be against the Marlins in the first half of the season. I don't know that it is. I haven't looked at their schedule to study this much. But I'm just saying, if you lose those games against the Marlins, and so you end up having only 12, and say the Braves end up getting 15, well, that three games against a team who's not very good could make a huge difference. They've got to, I think... They've got to figure out to make sure that everybody's playing the same amount of games against the division that they can because there are some teams that would look at it and be like, whoa, wait a minute. We are definitely backloaded against the better teams in our division or they're at a, an extreme advantage because they're getting some of those lesser teams. And even in interleague, same thing. You would get maybe yeah. some lesser teams. If you miss Detroit or Kansas City as your interleague matchup, but lucky you, you still get Minnesota and Cleveland where your division rival that you're getting is the opposite doesn't seem to be very fair. No, it doesn't. But we always run into this over the course of the 162 at some point, And we always say that it'll correct itself over the course of that season because of how many games it is. It's one of the reasons why I think the schedule carries a lot of weight and playing all of those games before you get to the playoffs is something to where you've proven yourself as a team overall. But there is always, Bill, and maybe not every year in terms of a drastic one, but you know the one club that gives you trouble for no apparent reason sure, that you just sure. can't beat? Even if you're a great team, I feel, feel like the Orioles were doing this to the Yankees a couple of years ago, where for some reason they just weren't able to put that team down and keep them down at the rate that you would expect. So it's hard to pick on the Marlins just for an example to say, hey, well, is it fair that so-and-so got more games against them than the other? Well, no, probably not. But if you sit down and look at the schedules for – interdivisional play and then you sit down and look at the logistics of how many double headers could you have in a week are we talking about one are we right. talking about two are we talking about making sure that all double headers are three days apart and then the great question in baseball what if it rains what if it rains oh, out a right. double header then how do you make that up there's a lot of logistical questions that i don't know that we're going to have the answers to but in getting those divisional games in i feel like that should be a priority if that's where they're looking to say make a hundred game season into a 110-game season. Right. And again, over the long haul, the teams that are supposed to be there are probably supposed to be there. But if you're a fan of a team that finishes one game out, even if it's an expanded playoffs, and you look back at the schedule and go, well, of course, we had to play the Yankees in interleague play, and the team that we finished a game behind played Baltimore, you're not going to be happy about it. <laughs> but hey, but I mean, win your games. At yeah, the well, end of the day, true. it's always winning. You got to win. Of course. Of course. But I can see that argument coming from a lot of different fan bases if that's how it plays out. So, again, I'd love it for it to just be American League games only. But unless you're going to move one team for the 2020 season to one league or the other, that ain't going to happen. So, yeah. Well, here's the scenario as well that I'm I'm looking at just from thinking about it and not just trying to add games to the schedule, but what if you're looking at doing double headers so that you can ensure a proper amount of number of off days that you could have to make yeah. a shortened season work? And now you're really not looking necessarily to add a bunch of games. Maybe you're looking to add necessary off days here and there to the schedule. I, I don't know that that's the case, but you could use these double headers 
in a number of different ways, both to add games or perhaps in some cases to add off days as well. I know a lot of clubs don't love to have two consecutive days off, but if you're in that string of, I don't know, 12 games in 13 days, and you can have a doubleheader halfway through that allows you to have that Thursday off because you've already played that and then you're going to go start a new weekend series, I think clubs would probably be in favor of that. And you're losing a lot of off days that you had throughout the season because you're losing the games that you never were going to get to play because they were on the schedule early. Maybe that's what they're looking at in some way, shape, or form as well. And looking at it from, hey, let's cram as many games as possible into as short a time period as possible is really not what the goal is for either side. But you do want to try to protect the integrity of the schedule as much as possible. How many of these are going to be split day doubleheaders? No idea. <laughs> Obviously, those are things. I mean, that, that's, that's another business thing, right? If you're if you're talking yeah. about these owners and the money, how many of these are going to be, uh, you know, noon starts and then seven o'clock starts, as opposed to, hey, we're going to throw first pitch for game one at one o five, coming out to the park, and fourteen yeah. innings later, that's when we'll be done. Well, that's also true, but I know with the minor league games that I started when they were doubleheaders, one was at 5.05, the next one was obviously scheduled for 7.05, the normal start time, but it was just 30 minutes after the first one ended was when you were going to play game two, and if you had a ticket to game one, you were in there for game two, and I would imagine just, again, not trying to be tone deaf at all about what's going on, but this is just a totally business of baseball discussion on how they can react to this. I wouldn't be trying to get people to do multiple tickets to doubleheaders. If these are going to be planned and announced, then, hey, you like baseball? You got two games today. Come on in. Stay a while. Spend your money in the team store. Buy some retail stuff. Spend your money at the concession stands. You know, Do all the things that you can do in a ballpark just for a longer period of time. I think that's the beauty of the planned doubleheader. And I do think that you could run promotions for a game one or a game two that are different from each other. If you want to do a bobblehead night or some kind of giveaway, all of the things that I think minor league baseball tries to do and can do so well. Major league baseball might find itself needing to tap into some of that family-friendly entertainment vibe that minor league baseball exudes. And I think that's pretty interesting considering how contentious the winter was between the major league side and the minor league side when we started talking about contracting teams in the minor league. So a lot of different things kind of swirling under the surface of this that Uh, teams and uh, the league and the players union are all going to have to sit down and look at and decide what's best for the year 2020 with a lot of uncertainty around us right now. I'll take the uncertainty. Just get the games back going when we can finally get the games back going. I'm not asking anybody to force things. I'm not asking anybody to go back out and start doing stuff before we should, but I just think we're all to the point now. Just let us see the finish line of this at some point and, and let's get the games back going. Yeah, I think that's what everybody's looking forward to. And before we uh, close down for this particular episode and uh, get ourselves ramped up for what we hope will be maybe a a week where we get a little bit more certainty in our lives and a little bit more certainty about sports and everything in general, let's talk about a couple of news headlines that have cropped up since the last time that we were able to talk, Bill, which has been a couple of weeks now. Tommy John surgery has been a big topic, Mm -hmm. and two of the best pitchers in baseball have undergone Tommy John surgery or will be. And that, of course, is Chris Sale of the Boston Red Sox, who we did talk about on the podcast as the possibility of him needing that was certainly something you had to consider. And then the big news this week, Noah Syndergaard of the New York Mets, also Tommy John surgery for him. So uh, tough to see both of those guys go down. And for me, I've always looked at this from the big picture perspective of Major League Baseball. I want the best players out there playing the best baseball all the time, regardless of who I root for. Really hate to see both of these guys going down for at least 2020. And all the way into 2021, I believe, will be the case for both as well. 
Yeah, and I mean, the sale one, not as surprising as Syndergaard. I hadn't seen anything during spring training and, and admittedly don't follow the Mets as closely as some other teams, but I hadn't seen anything that made me think that that, that Syndergaard was going to be going under the knife. The sale thing, I'm not surprised that the, the people that I talked to up in Boston on occasion were very, very adamant that they didn't think the timetable the Red Sox were putting out there uh, was going to be a, a correct time frame for when he would be back. But Syndergaard, I mean, the Mets just cannot catch a break. It seems like every time we turn around, something happens with them. I know we talked a lot about the Yankees and their injuries. This whole thing actually, I think, helps the Yankees as far as getting back healthy if we do get baseball started June 1st or July 1st. But, boy, the Mets just cannot catch a break. I'm with you. It sucks. I love watching both of these guys pitch. Um, It's a lot more fun when the best of the best are out there doing their thing and and yeah, it may be till June of next year before we see right. either one of these guys in a major league uniform again. Yeah, and that was just kind of my bigger point was obviously Tommy John surgery is is not uncommon in major league baseball. We've seen the rash of it in the last couple of decades really going to the point where you had to sit down and wonder why exactly in some cases this was going on and there's a number of different reasons for that. But when I think about it from a purely baseball side of things from a overall view of hey, what's right with baseball or how can baseball market itself? having its best players out there playing at the highest level, that number one, the talent perspective, that's why I just I hate to see these injuries for the guys themselves. But as far as baseball is concerned, when you talk about marketing your stars, maybe they don't do the best job of that all the time, or maybe it's just apples and oranges considering other leagues are able to do it differently. But yeah, I definitely hate to see the star power loss uh, for Major League Baseball as a whole. And obviously it's going to affect each of those teams and each of those individuals as well. Uh, there was a video, and I'm going to have to find this. I'm going to share this because it's been about three or four years since I've shared this or even looked this up myself. But Adam Adovino, who was with the Rockies at the time and signed a big free agent contract with the Yankees not too long ago, he had a GoPro that he set up for his Tommy John rehab. And for everybody that kind of looks at it like, oh, he got Tommy John, see him next year. If you knew the work that goes in for these guys to get back to it, if you got to see it, you would look at Tommy John surgery so much more differently than oh yeah, it'll be fine. I'll have the surgery and it'll be back in a year and a half or 14 months. And you know he'll be good as new or better than new in the case of the way that some people look at it. The Adam Adovino video, and I will send this out. It's on YouTube if you want to just go ahead and Google it, but I will tweet out a link to this. It's fascinating. And it goes from pretty much the first day on the table uh, coming back for rehab to the first time that he was able to play catch again. I thought it was really, really informative because it's obviously using the time lapse to get him through some of these workouts so that you could just see what his life was like as he was just trying to get back on the field and be able to throw a baseball again. Yeah, the the work, and, and again, you and I being around some of these guys that have had it, see it a little bit more than the average fan does because, as you said, guy goes and has surgery, he goes away, and you just don't see him, and then all of a sudden he's at spring training, and, oh, he's throwing out the 60 feet. Oh, they're going to stretch him out to 120 and, and all that kind of stuff. But we have seen them – go through the, okay, I got to break through the scar tissue. Okay, the next thing I yeah. have to, and it's the small baby steps day by day. It, it, it is impressive that that these guys have this hard work to, to, to want to have that drive to get back to where they were, in some cases be even a little bit better than they were. But yeah, it's just not go in, have your tonsils removed, eat ice cream right. for a couple of days, and we'll, we'll see you in a year and a half. It doesn't work that way. No, it does not. In fact, Adam Adovino's video was originally posted as part of an article in the Players' Tribune in 2015. It's six minutes and eight seconds, and it spans 16 weeks of his life because it takes 16 weeks after Tommy John surgery 
to be able to safely throw a baseball again. And that is what he documented. I thought that was really fascinating. And given that Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard both undergoing Tommy John surgery here in the last week or two, I thought it was worth looking at again, because if you just have the perspective of, oh, that really sucks. And that guy's going to be out for a while. And, oh, we'll see him again next year, or maybe the summer after that, depending on when he gets the surgery, this will give you a lot of insight on what exactly is going on when somebody has to rehab from that surgery. So something interesting to throw in there, something a little bit more baseball related, even though it's a video of somebody rehabbing to play baseball again, I feel like we're all kind of, you know, looking for those things right now to occupy our time with and to concentrate on so that we don't have to spend all of our time fretting or uh, feeling the threat of the spread of the virus and uh, getting ourselves really worked up. I mean, hopefully people are able to follow the protocols, you know, practice good hygiene, do all the social distancing, and, you know, we're able to work through this thing sooner than later. And we can be talking about when exactly an actual date for the resumption of the baseball season will be. And we can talk about when opening day will be and not this opening day at home thing. The opening day at home, I thought Major League Baseball, a lot of the players have done a great job. You can find, yeah, you can find it on Twitter or Instagram or I'm sure Facebook or whatever, but watching them uh, with their young, in many cases, sons, either taking them deep with a wiffle ball or striking them out. I mean, it's just fun to go and watch these guys just having fun being dads like the rest of us would do. It's been a lot of fun to watch. I'd rather be watching them in an actual stadium against other players, but for the time being, at least the the videos are cute and and to see that they're enjoying their time with their family as well. Yeah, there was a great video of Freddie Freeman going deep off of his son. It might have been a foul ball, according to reports, but either way, (laughs) Freddie's wife, Chelsea, was able to shoot a video of that, and it was uh, pretty tremendous. A lot of folks have gotten a a look at that and a good laugh at that as well, but uh, the bat flip and also, um, you know, having his son throw down the glove, I think was uh, pretty amusing, but Either way, we also got a full slate of what I would say memorable games for their team's history in lieu of not having an opening day game to watch. So a lot of great archival stuff, which is something I think baseball should lean on as well in these times is to go back and find games that might be interesting to people and not just, you know, such and such game of the World Series, because I do think those are great and sure mix them in, but maybe finding some more interesting games from different times because, you know, the library's out there somewhere. But I don't know that Major League Baseball necessarily prepared to maybe have to dip into its library quite as much as it may need to between now and, say, June the 1st, if they're able to get this season off the ground when they want to. Yeah, no question. I think one of the ones that that MLB uh, recently showed was Nolan Ryan throwing the no-hitter at 44, which, again, is just stunning to me that he threw a no-hitter at 44. One of my favorite guys of all time. So, yeah, the, the, the fact that they're doing some of the historic playoff games, but even a game like that, which is just tremendous, uh, it's been a lot of fun to, to go back and kind of look in the archives for some of those games that, for some of us, we remember and live through. And for the younger baseball fans, it may be interesting just to go back, and even though it's not in 4K, 1080p high def, you can still right. still enjoy the game, even if it's a little fuzzy and you wonder how your parents are even able to watch television that way back in the day. Yeah, it might be a little bit different, but something worth looking back on. I always like looking at old games. There's some of them on YouTube that you can find. I know there's one out there if you're a Braves fan. You can watch John Smoltz's second career start. It's against the Cincinnati Reds back in 1988. I thought that was pretty interesting because they didn't have his debut against the Mets, which he won, but they did have the next time he was out there, and it was still fun listening to the broadcasters just sizing up this young rookie John Smoltz and what to expect from him and how his Major League debut went and what he might be in the future. And then you fast forward to a Hall of Fame career, of course, we know about as we sit here in the year 2020. But 
Just some interesting things to uh, pass your time with. I've been opening some baseball cards up and doing some uh, live broadcasts on Twitter as well, Bill. I don't know if you've been tuned into those, but you know, kind of fun to find whatever baseball we can in these times because you know we've got to be a little bit more creative than we have been in order to get our baseball fixed these days. I did check in on you opening up, uh, I think it was some Topps 2020 mm-hmm. wax packs, if, I, if I'm correct. Right. Uh, I, I did watch that for a little bit. Uh, when you pulled, I want to say it was your Chris Bryant gold foil one. Yeah. I think I was tuned in when that happened. So how did, how did it turn out? Did you come up with some other good pulls? Um, that was probably my best in terms of the limited edition. I didn't get any relics, so no jersey cards, no bat cards. I also got no autographs in that box as well, which was a little bit of a disappointment. I'm going to have to go back and look at the odds on that kind of stuff. But uh, <laughs> either way, I think the highlight for me, at least in a low-key way, was opening up the pack that had my Ronald Acuna Jr. card in it. I got one Ronald Acuna Jr. in all of the packs I opened, which, let's see, it was 14 in the two blaster boxes, then 24, so 38 packs. And one Ronald Acuna Jr., wow. the base card of him. I did get a turkey red, I think. And so I got two total Acuna cards in essentially three little cases of baseball cards. But pulling the one and then immediately behind him, the next card, Jose Urania. There you go. And the fact that those two men will forever be linked, at least to Braves fans, as one of the biggest dust-ups we've had in the last couple of years when Acuna was on his tear of leadoff home runs, and Arrange just drilled him to start yeah. the game. I, I don't know what you would call that irony, if nothing else, that those two guys were packaged in there, and that's the only one I got of either one of those guys, and they were back to back. So it makes me want to go out and buy a couple of boxes. I might have to. I may have to do that today on my next grocery run if the place has them. I may have to go buy a couple of boxes. It's been a, a few years since I've actually gone and bought uh, a box of cards just to open up, but I might have to do that because I got nothing else to do. Hey, no better time to do it. And if you want to open them up and broadcast them live, I'll be happy to sit there and watch you do it. So I appreciate you uh, checking in again this week. And hopefully we can get back on a at least a good schedule of getting these things recorded and having something to talk about. And knowing that there's a framework of a deal in place for when baseball is able to resume, that makes me feel a little bit better about where we're trending. But obviously the number one concern everybody has right now is the overall health of the country and the world and, of course, each other. So make sure that that priority is Uh, the number one thing on your mind as you go through the next few weeks or whatever it may be to do all the proper things that you need to do to keep yourself safe. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, uh, tuning in, listening, and uh, be safe out there. We'll talk with you soon. All right, so that'll wrap us up for this week's show. Make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. Tell a friend if you don't mind as well. Appreciate all of that. And be sure you're following along on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can find Bill Rowland on Twitter at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. And of course, the show is at From the Diamond underscore. You can also follow along on Instagram at From the Diamond there with no underscore. And I am at Grant McCauley as well. And over at FromTheDiamond.com, you can find every episode of the show and also the Braves positional preview series I did to get ready for whenever the 2020 baseball season will get started. A lot of good info there. It's a five-part written series and a five-part podcast series as well. So be sure to check those out. And I'll be looking to do some other Braves articles in the not-too-distant future as well. And you can find it all at FromTheDiamond.com. So that's it for this week's show. Perhaps a little light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to figuring out when we're going to get some baseball and what a baseball season might look like in the year 2020. We'll keep you updated on that and look forward to discussing much more of it with you on next week's episode of From the Diamond. 
Once again, my thanks to Bill Rowland for checking in, and my thanks again to you for subscribing and listening and making this a part of your week. I definitely appreciate that. So that'll do it for this from the Diamond, but we'll be back next week. And until then, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone. <laughs>